Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. Uh, and this episode, I want to return to the investment mini series. And I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Peter Loy. Peter. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for Thanks inviting for me along. No, thank you for reaching out. So you uh, watched the first um, of the Brokenomics uh, finance mini series, mm-hmm. um, and and felt you could you could add something. Absolutely, you can. What what, what is your background? Where have you worked? Uh, oh, blimey, my background goes back many many years. Um, I had an army career to start with until the age of twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, lived through Big Bang in the right. army actually, but saw it. Um, was always quite good at maths and thought. We're talking about the deregulation of the finance sector, not the not the creation of the universe. Yeah, that one as well. Yeah, I'm not. I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's sort of 86, 87 in the city. Was a soldier, but saw lots of kids earning a lot of money and thought mm-hmm. I'd love to have some of that. Uh, left the army in 1990, straight into a recession. So no one was hiring in the city. But by hook or by crook, I worked my way into what was a merchant bank at the time mm-hmm. in 1992. Uh, went in at the very bottom level. My first job title was assistant uh, fund administrator, which was the best decision of my life, I would say, because it meant I went into the city right at the bottom and learned all the nuts and bolts. Mm. Uh, all the settlement sort of procedures, technical stuff that goes on in the back office. Um, and basically, well, and actually, settlement is understanding that skill is vital for a fund manager because you can so easily get caught out by flows on on a daily uh, basis. Yeah. So settlement is a crucial part of that understanding. I, I mean, all the technical aspects behind mm. it, you need to understand them. And um, one of the other things I did very early on in my career, when I started to, I guess, show some potential, is I ended up running foreign exchange funds. One of the most uh, ignored factors in investing is currency and the impact mm. currencies have on any investment, obviously overseas from your base currency. So in uh, 1996, I was running FX funds, which were the sort of the, 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 jo- the job for the junior on the desk, but it was so enlightening. Um, and I mean, today in my own assets, I do hedge currencies out. And- well, I mean, perhaps we can, we, can, we can briefly touch on the currency side of things, because I mean, I remember there was a time where markets generally and certainly currencies responded to the underlying fundamentals. Um, I'm gonna give you an example. One of my first job interviews when when I was sort of applying in the city, you know, the guy said to me, "Okay, sit down. Job interview starts now." And the question was something like, um, "Argentinian, no, uh, Italian um, interest rates go up. What happens to Argentinian grain exports?" Mm-hmm. And he wanted to see if you could sort of work through the process on that. But what we're seeing more recently with currency flows, we're seeing um, the the fundamentals of the dollar often getting weaker, and yet the the dollar getting stronger. And it seems like there is now a disconnect between the fundamental strength of an economy and and the way that the the currency is moving how do you think about that i try not to in the short run (laughs) Uh, i mean sort of more much more interested in the long run Mm. yeah you can't trade day-to-day currencies some people do clearly Mm. but certainly not my skill set um at the end of the day it's all about flow of currency the Mm. creation of currency i think and the one you touch on, the dollar, is always the flight to safety trade. Yeah. So however bad it is in so America. So the dollar milkshake, I'm thinking the of. The dollar yeah. milkshake, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brett Johnson's dollar milkshake theory. But as, as, um, the dollar, uh, as the dollar dies, it paradoxically gets stronger, stronger because there's so much debt out there that people are scrabbling for a smaller number of dollars, dollars. and therefore the, yeah. the dollar strength rises. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And I do buy into that. I think the other – what you have to accept, though, is that the dollar is – it's not going to disappear as a reserve currency overnight, but its influence is ebbing away. Mm. And the statistics, I haven't got them to hand, but the statistics would prove that the dollar is becoming less important in global trade, albeit is still the most important currency in the world. Yeah. The way I look at 
currencies is it's just an additional risk. And if I'm uncomfortable with a currency, and to be fair, I'm always uncomfortable with the euro. I or if I have a European investment, I always hedge out the euro. Um, be it right or be it wrong, but it takes out a risk I don't need to. Take is that because on. of the underlying um, political weakness? The structure. Right, it's a. It's a. It's an absolutely misconceived concept. Ultimately, mm. it will fall apart um, at some point. Sadly, I've been saying yeah. that for about a decade. I'll probably be saying it for another decade, but at some point, my, I'll my, be right. And to come back to the dollar point, my pushback on the dollar thing is people, you know, say, okay, I mean, yes, I appreciate the dollar is not going to fail overnight. I think it's been failing for over a decade at this point, and we are just in that slow process. And it, and you're right, it might take, it might take decades yet mm. to get to that point. I, I think you're probably right. But there are other assets that you can buy to hedge against, you know, currency weakness. Mm. The obvious asset to buy against a dollar weakness is gold, mm. or your favourite Bitcoin. Yes, um, well, which really, has other levels of risk, but yeah. it certainly. Benefits. Well, what, what what you want? I mean, anything in that basket needs to be something that you can't print. So it could yeah. be, um, it could be gold because there's a finite supply. Of it. it could be mm. Bitcoin because there's a finite supply, or perhaps commodities. Yeah. Or I'll throw another one in, which I think is probably going to be something for the future and probably won't touch on it today, maybe do something again in the future, is carbon credits. Okay, that's interesting. That's a fascinating area, uh, and I would encourage everyone to look at it. It's the one thing the Europeans have actually constructed correctly. The European Mm. carbon credit scheme is fascinating. Personally, I think the whole climate change thing is suspect. But yes. one of the points I made in the document I sent to you is one of the best investment skills you can have is to be a total hypocrite. Just because I don't believe in something yes. doesn't mean to say I'm not you going can't to try make and make money, money out of it. So, um, I mean, what, what, what's the gist of these carbon credits? I mean, it's, it's essentially that you, you get these permits to emit a certain amount of carbon and then they're just gradually shrinking them down over time. They ju- yeah. So if you are an industrial user, for instance, mm. a, a BASF or something like that, a massive emitter of carbon, you have to op- offset your... Um, carbon mm. by paying a tax, which is this: you buy these credits, and then they are you hand them in at the end of the year, and they're cancelled. And the supply of these things is gradually reducing. I think it's about three percent per annum. Um, but the European Union are actively encouraging investors to get involved because that yes. additionally reduces the, su- the 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 supply of these things, and therefore forces this tax up in value. Yeah. So. Um, I, I know a lot of a lot of people in the investor space have been talking about them. The, 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 I, I just don't like going anywhere anywhere near something like that when I don't believe in the underlying premise of it. I mean, I appreciate your point; you can still make money from it anyway. The only the only question I'd have from that is because it is built on a political project. Mm. If there is sufficient pushback to the green agenda at some point, yeah. politicians can start to roll back on some of this stuff, and we are seeing that pushback happen quite. Uh, well, quite aggressively in Germany at the moment. So something we'll touch on, I think, is the active versus the passive thing. Mm. When you're buying carbon credits, you definitely have to be pa- active. You can't okay. just hold them. Not a buy and hold, it's a, it's we've a monitor. Seen, yeah, we, you, we've just seen the biggest test of the carbon credit market, on your point, in the last winter. Mm. If there was ever going to be a time when the European Union were going to say, hang on, we've got this wrong, it was going to be during an energy crisis in Germany. Mm. And they didn't. In fact, they doubled down. So you've got to be cognizant of the the political risk that one day you may walk in and this thing's been cancelled and your investment's mm. gone to nothing. If it was going to happen, 
it was going to have happened last winter. I, I think the Germans spent half a trillion, trillion yeah, getting through one winter. One winter. And with yeah. that, you could have bought an entire suite of nuclear mm. power stations and had basically free marginal cost energy for the next two generations. Yeah, but Dan, don't laugh at them. We're building a railway line across this country that no one yes. needs, and you could get a dozen nuclear power stations out of the same expenditure. So you're mm. building a railway line that benefits a decreasing handful of businessmen a when small you, number of MPs who want to get down to Westminster yeah, slightly and quicker. I live in the northeast of England. The East Coast Main Line is the best railway line in the country. It's fantastic. You don't need HS2. We do need a dozen new nuclear power stations. Absolutely right. We've got a sidetrack slightly there. but um, so you, 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 you did um, You did foreign exchange and then you went into fund management. Yeah, so I, I did all the exams. So I qualified um, what would now be known as the CFA in the UK version well done for sticking that whole thing out. I, I, I never made it through. Uh, well, no, the UK version used to be called the IIMR, mm. the Institute of Investment Management and Research, uh, which got consumed into the CFA eventually. So I did those exams whilst as a, an administrator, okay. uh, but then I was sort of a fully, in theory, qualified fund manager. I then met up. I worked for, uh, in this merchant bank that had an asset management company. They employed a new person who had a new idea with a, mm. a new fund or a range of funds, actually. Um, and I joined him in 1997, and we created a fund-to-fund product, or he'd created it. I joined him just afterwards. Now, um, for, for a long time, fund-to-funds were a bit of a mainstay. How established were they at this point? This was pretty... Uh, we were really at the forefront of it. So when did you say this was? This was 97, 1997. Okay. Now, they had been around before. Okay. I think the the addition we added to it was... Pre us and a few others okay. at that time, fund of funds have been a collection of yeah. funds put together of jolly good people who did a jolly good job. Yeah. We actually, the, the, the sort of the development we put onto it was put a macroeconomic overlay over it. Okay. And so, so this was something I hinted at in the previous uh, investment episode. So, just to explain for the audience, the uh, a fund manager looks after a uh, portfolio of money, normally focused on a specific thing. So, it could be um, UK mid caps, it could be Japanese large caps, mm-hmm. it could be Italian small companies, yep. or, or anything like that. And a fund of funds manager is basically taking he, he's doing the same thing as a fund manager, but he's doing it at the fund level. So, he's incorporating these various funds together. Yeah. Um, and then what it allows you to do is add a um, a, uh, a global macro perspective yeah. on the top. Okay, so what proportion do we want these various different things yeah. in? Do, what proportion of bonds and equities and size of equities and all those things? And, and that's the, the what you brought to it, was it? I wouldn't say we were the first to do it. We were certainly at the forefront of doing it um, at the time. There were a few teams sort of developing this fund-to-fund product at the time, uh, so late 90s. Um, ultimately, our team, we moved in 2001 to an investment house called Jupiter. I'm sure I can mention yeah. them. A lot of your listeners will know of Jupiter Asset Management. They um, were very acquisitive at the time, and they brought in a lot of expertise from various places to build out their, their asset management business. It was the, the founder had just left um, in a blaze of glory. Uh, anyone who wants to know about that can look at the, look at the internet. I mean, it, was a great, uh, it was a great scandal at the time. We went in there, uh, recruited by the CEO at the time, to build a, a, from scratch a range of funder funds, um, which we did. We went from zero to about 10 billion of assets okay. at a time when 10 billion was, was quite a big, a big number. number. <laughs> it yes. was, um, it yes. was pre, most of it was pre QE. So, you know, 10, a billion was a lot of money. Um, um, so just, just where we're on that, another thing I touched on that I brought up in, in, in the previous um, in, investment episode is there has been a big push towards passive, yeah. which is um, funds which, 
don't make any attempt to make a selection criteria. They simply yeah. follow the index. So they, mm-hmm. so they, for example, they just follow mm-hmm. the FTSE 100 and, and mm-hmm. a, as it is. Um, and I have heard lots of criticism over my career of um, fund of funds on the mm-hmm. basis that you're paying two levels of charges. Yeah. So what what's your answer to that? Because I mean, I know I know what my answer uh, is, but my answer is absolutely you're paying two levels of charges, but mm. the good ones justify that. Mm. You know, if you are active enough and make the right decisions uh, and position your portfolio well enough, I mean, we only ever used to advertise our returns after fees, so it was mm. what the client actually got. Mm. As you get bigger, mm. you generate economies of scale in that game, so you can really drive the fees down. Um, so those products were more expensive at the time. We we made no bones about it. If you didn't want them, don't buy them. Because my concern um, with the and it has been a real cult of the of the passive investing over the last mm. well, sort of twenty thirty years, mm. is that it works very well when there is a small amount of passive money. Yeah, absolutely. because you are benefiting from everybody else making active investment decisions, mm. discovering what the marginal price is. Yeah, um, and then the the passive funds can sort of peg along with that. Yeah. But we're now in a situation where I mean I don't know what the numbers, but I wouldn't I, I would be amazed if passive wasn't the majority of, of 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 the funding at this point. I think it's more important to look at the flow. Right. The flow yes. into passive is the vast majority of yes. flow into markets. Mm. Um and, and, it's, and it's all dumb money. Yeah, absolutely. Oh well. Mm. Passive has a place, don't mm. get me wrong. I mean they're great trading instruments if you yes. are a trader. Yes. Um but you see these massive flows in the US pension fund 401k system that they just tick the you know S&P 500 tracker and every month they get you get billions and billions of dollars going into Vanguard yeah. and uh, the old BGI uh, which means products. that the companies that are already big have a sort of guaranteed Team flow flowing. going into them yeah. yeah and and it does actually constrain innovation at the end of the day it's not good for capitalism because the smaller companies that need the capital that might have a new product because they're not in the index, don't tend to get it. They tend to become beholden on mm. your old job, the venture capitalist yeah. and and whatever, the private equity guy. Um, so there is a place for passive. It has been a fantastic place to be. I really question whether it's the place to be going forwards mm. because the trends we've seen over the last 40 years are, I hate to say the future is going to be different, but I suspect the future is going to be very different to the time we grew up. So, in. so let's touch on that. There was a there was a graph that you you brought with us. Mm. Um, let's throw that up on screen at the moment. Um, what what is this graph telling us? So, if this is the graph of number eleven, yeah, the graph of um, basically it's it's the yield on the the US ten year bond. It, mm. It's just a representation of what interest rates have done for the last uh, forty years, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, You've so, got to, so this is the this is the basically the big trend that has been driving the market over the last forty years, yeah. which is effectively what we're looking at here is is the cost of money. Would you say it's, yeah, is it's that the, fair? The, the cost of capital, uh, mm. the cost of of money. You've had this forty year trend of disinflation. I mean, it started really when, or was driven by you know China joining the World Trade Organization, the Berlin Wall coming down. Mm. You know that coincided with the start of this trend, actually, pretty much. Um, so you've had a trend of disinflation, which has allowed rates to come down mm. uh, consistently. Not a straight line, but the no. trend has been down until we reached the absurd position about two years ago of negative interest rates. Yes, um, which I hope is never repeated. You so, are, 
Yeah. So, so, so for the, the for those who are listening rather than watching, um, what we got is we got a chart here, and I think yours goes back to uh, 1983. Yeah, I think it's 40 years. But, but, yeah. It, but it, yeah, but um, it, it's essentially a line that zigzags either side of a uh, what maybe a, a negative 20 percent gradient of the Something cost like of money coming mm-hmm. down. Um, and it's it's just this, this consistent flow until and is, is, is oh yeah the straight the straight line is the um, is the zero it's bound, the zero bound yeah so we yeah. Hit the, we effectively hit the zero bound virtually everywhere and some places it went negative but the, I think I think the essential point to make here is there is a whole generation of market participants fund managers who their entire career have been used to the paradigm of next year money will be cheaper yeah. And, you know, amongst the many things that is set up is an expectation. And I throw uh, another group of people yeah. in there that's quite important as well. People who manage businesses yes. are used to a falling weight, yes. average weight of cost of capital. Because you, you can go out and borrow a large amount of money and then the following year you can refinance it at a lower cost. That cost, yes. Um, so, the, so the impetus is, is to always take on more debt. Yeah, until mm. it isn't. Yes. And that's the point we've reached. Now we've had inflation in the system. Rates have gone up, as we've seen. Um, things are going to get more difficult. Why do you feel that they that inflation did not manifest earlier? I think, so let's go back to the credit crisis. You had in 2009. Um, from that point onwards, you always had monetary policy doing one thing mm-hmm. and fiscal policy doing the opposite. So if you remember, we go back to the early part of the 2010s in the UK, we had interest rates falling, Mm. but good old George Osborne was banging in the austerity. Mm. So fiscal was pointing one way, monetary was pointing the other way. And it was the same in other places around the world until COVID, the the lockdown crisis, um, you suddenly had monetary policy pointing in one direction and fiscal pointing in the same direction. Mm. So it was literally- Large S on both fronts. Large S on both fronts. Effectively, since 2010, you had someone driving a car with their foot on the accelerator and someone else leaning over and pressing the brake. And then suddenly the brake came off and it was both feet on the accelerator. Yeah. Also, something interesting happened to the way that money was created as well around 2010. Before that, it was primarily the private banks mm. who, were, who were leading the money creation. And then the, then the reforms at the time made it more difficult for those private banks to do that, which sort of led to this uh, slower rate of monetary creation, which led to the banks coming in. Yeah, I think you're right there to a point. I think a lot of the regulation that came in actually drove money creation out of the formal banking system mm. and into the shadows. Yes. And actually, if we fast forward to today, one of the big worries I have in my mind is we have no idea what's in the shadows. I mean, your old industry, venture capital, mm. private equity, there's loads of these industries that are, we have no real idea how much debt is there, but we know it's a it's considerable, lot. Considerable, <laughs> you know, yes. I mean, pick a number and yes. double it at least. I mean, and do, 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 you, do you think the central planners... Um, the central banks, do you think they have a, a handle on this? Because I'm not sure if they do. Do you I want an honest answer? Or a yeah. I don't think they have a bloody clue. Okay, so that, that's another interesting question. Are are the central bankers very, very stupid or very, very clever? Now, I, I could take either side of that because <laughs> yeah. the, the stupid side of that would be, well, just look at what they've done. Yeah. But to be fair, the set of choices for they – I mean, if you if you got the job of chairman of the Federal Reserve, I mean, what would you do? Resign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Im- 
immediately resi- I'd probably do a day so I qualified for the pension or right, whatever, and okay. then resign. I'd do a, a Liz Truss in the banking but, world. But the choices <laughs> they have at this point are, are all bad. But yes, they, yeah, they've snookered themselves. They absolutely back themselves into a corner. So are they stupid? Yes. Are they or, just Or, or are they, or, or do they have a bigger plan here? Because if we look at the actions that they're taking... <sighs> Yeah, I know where you go. Do, 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 do you want to give your thoughts on financial repression? What do you think is going to happen next? What do I think is going to happen next? I think it, they the authorities are desperate to hold this thing together. And to be fair, they have held it together, mm. doubling down for the last... Well, you could take this back to probably 1998 when long-term capital management collapsed. If we'd had capitalism at the time, that should have been allowed to collapse. There would have been losses. It would have been cleared up. Everyone would have learned a lesson. Okay. And so that that was nineteen ninety eight, was yeah, it? So, so was that was that would have been about the same time as the Asian financial crisis. It, well, Asia was ninety seven. Yes. Uh, ninety yes. early ninety eight was the Russian default crisis, yes. and then LTCM got dragged down by. And, and that. at that point, I mean, governments um, had debt. Governments had deficits. But it was at the scale where you could oh, have you addressed could this it. stuff honestly. Oh, you could have, yeah, you could have cleaned yeah. well, up. And, and the Asians did, didn't they? Yeah. And the oh, Russians the did. Yeah, I, I mean, ironically, mm. the Asians were forced by many of these multina- uh, multinational uh, organizations like the IMF and the World mm. Bank, to, they were forced to take their medicine. So that, that was effectively the last point of which they probably could have, they could have taken the pain, but they didn't want to. I think you probably could have taken it in the credit crisis. It would okay. have been a lot Into more. Into 2008? Uh, yeah, I think. We, okay. It's hard to know, isn't it? Yes. We're, we're, it's it, counterfactual. but It's counterfactual. We'll yeah. never know. But I think, yeah, I mean, the losses may have finished the system. But mm. I mean, my personal opinion as an investor is you, if you're going to take pain, take it early, mm. as early as you can. You know, if you're going to panic, panic early. Don't yes, hang on. Yes, but to and, be fair, the, the people who were in charge at the time, I mean, their their careers are long gone at this point. You know, oh, they, they are well into retirement. Yeah. So the incentive is always to kick the can down the road so that the next guy picks it up. Yeah. The problem that we've got now is that we're kind of out at the end of the road. It's difficult to see. I would have said that a long time ago, and they've kept it going. Yeah. But it's I do tend to agree. Yeah. I mean, how the hell have they got away with this? But I do tend to agree with you. You look at it now, and you think, okay, now, now there has to be a confiscation cycle. Someone has to pay the piper here. Yes. Because um, just, just, just to explain, the, the, the problem that they've got is that back then, they could always find the next marginal buy of the government bonds. Yeah. And today we are finding that people are saying no thank you yeah. when offered those bonds. And they're not only saying no thank you, they're saying you can also have these ones we already own back. Yes. So we're referring we're here to Middle Eastern petro nations. Yes. Maybe our friends in China. They're sort yes. of... They're not rolling over the the debts they own, mm. the assets they own, and they're also handing some back at a time when the US is running deficits that just make your eyes. So, so essentially, um, Western nations. I mean, well, we might as well just talk about the US because I mean they're they're, they're so complete. Dominates everything, yes, they, yeah. they dominate everything. Yeah. So we, we might as well just cut to that. The US is in a position where it cannot find the honest next buyer of government debt voluntarily, voluntarily, which is your financial repression. Yeah. So, so financial repression. What, what was financial repression? So, financial repression is when people are going to be forced to do things. Now, um, and, by, and it, by that, so I how, mean, how would it affect me if, I, if I've got a pension? How do you, how do you force me to do anything? So, let's just for the audience point out we're speculating here. We don't know. Yes. Let's just be careful <laughs> on this point. But I mean, we've seen it before in this country. 
uh, I can't remember when, but the insurance companies were regulated into owning government debt. Right. So, um, so this is when the regulator steps in and says, look, um, what you guys are doing is you're taking a certain amount of risk and yeah. therefore we are going to help you yeah. by mandating yeah. that you put a certain proportion of it into buying government bonds. Into our risk-free government yes, bonds. Risk-free government bonds, yes. Um, which worked in a falling interest rate environment, which mm. we are no longer in. Um, so, uh, But I, I could envisage owners of private pensions being forced to reduce mm. the risk in their pension via regulation into owning a allocation in government bonds. And it's not good for the investor, but it bails the government out. So the, these risk-free government bonds, of course, it wasn't just um, insurance companies. Pensions funds had a lot of these as well. And banks. And because of that chart that you showed us a few moments ago, about how the return on your money, the return on your bonds that you hold is, is down and down. We we found ourselves in a situation, was it last year now? Um, the, um, the the end of the list trust reign. The LDI where, Yes, where these pension funds in the UK, mm -hmm. they had been, um, I, I don't know to what extent they were mandated to hold them, but it would, have been a, it would have been a substantial. They were holding a large amount of these. And in order to extract at least a little bit of leverage, uh, sorry, a little bit of return on mm. these on these low yielding mm. things, they, they leveraged them yeah. up. Yeah. So was it Liz Truss announcing that she was going to slightly reduce the tax rate on, on the wealthiest people? people that, that caused the market to blow up? Or was it something deeper than that? I think the market was already blowing up by the time Liz mm. Trust. I mean, everything Liz Trust, pretty much everything Liz Trust was going to put in that budget had been pre-announced. Yes. There was only one thing, I think. It, it, was, was, it, was, it was the, the it was the 45p cut. tax rate, which yeah. apparently would have cost two, two billion, billion if it was a net, yeah. net reduction. Yeah. So she was, a, she was a convenient scapegoat for the yes. whole thing. Because I think, and I actually think the UK gilt market had already started to sell off two or three days before in quite a dramatic fashion. Yes. And that was, you know, that might have been the final nail. So we have since learned that there's been lots of, um, th there were communications at the central bank saying mm. that, you know, this is this is about to blow up yeah. to push back on it. So, um, so uh, insurance companies, pension funds, um, and other institutions, so people who manage our money. So if I've got a pension fund, I might find that the, the, the regulators are saying that a greater and greater proportion of that needs to go into these Risk-free bonds. Risk-free bonds. So that's essentially financial repression. Yeah. And what, possibly what corporate cash piles as well? Could it be that? They could go for anything. There's, any, any asset that is captured, that mm. can't move, can't escape the system, mm. could be subject to financial repression. That's my, my personal <clears throat> opinion. Um, so they're going to force people to own more government bonds, potentially. Potentially. Uh, well, this, well, this is the Russell Napier theory, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's financial repression piece. So, so more people are going to be forced to buy this. But that's not enough, is it? No, because you now need to stop it escaping. Yes. So you now, and anyone who's old enough to remember the 70s or, or earlier, mm. capital controls, credit controls, you need to stop that money leaking out of... Where you where the government have got it stuck. So I, I see the Operation Choke Point stuff around crypto yeah. as being a an, an element of this. Yeah. Um, we had the uh, the Silicon Valley Bank blow up. Yeah. Um, and people started to realise that actually the money in the bank isn't their money. It's it's a liability of the bank. Well, in the UK, yeah. the first eighty five thousand pounds of a, in a deposit account or a current account is yours, mm. and everything else is capital of the bank, mm. effectively. Uh, it might be in your name, but it can be taken. It can be mm. uh, seized, confiscated. Um, and I mean, I personally, I think, uh, in fact, the list I wrote, if anyone looks at it on the website, the first point I made is, you know, your aim as an investor is to avoid confiscation. Simple yes. as. 
and there yes. are a number of ways we can confiscate money. Yeah, let, we, we, we should we should mention that you you've um, so after your um, after your tenure in the city, mm. you then basically sat down and reflected and produced a series of sort of investment lessons. Is that right? I sort of did it for my own. Yeah, well, investment lessons. I think that's a bit grand, but I mean, right. I, I sort of left in the in two thousand and fourteen, and I thought there's a few things I don't want to forget. I know I've got a head like a sieve. I know I'll get distracted. I'll, I'll write down these sort of 10 or 12 things I want to remember. So I sat down one afternoon, a week after I'd sort of quit the city, and and about 8 o'clock that evening, I'd been sat there for six hours, and I've come up with 140 uh, things that I didn't want to forget. And so I wrote them down. I've periodically looked at it until I heard your first uh, mm. podcast in this series and I thought blimey Dan is talking about stuff that I know I've written down yes and there are some points I think that might help him expand some of these issues as well so I sent you the list and so, so for the viewer that is available in the reading list of this episode yeah. um, so you very kindly provided a, a, a version of that which mm. um, which people can go and look at yeah. of course none of it is financial advice yeah uh, but it, it does give some some um, some ways of understanding this yeah and I mean there's I haven't changed it from the day I wrote it down. There's one there's one or two on there I would actually now change. Uh, right. to be honest with what's happened in the the recent past there's a few things I thought actually that like everything that now looks a bit odd and stupid but I didn't change it. Um maybe I should change it because having gone from being an institutional investor running a large mm. portfolio and critically earning a salary I'm now Dependent, I eat what I kill in terms of investment. What, what, what is the biggest difference between being a institutional, you know, being a, being mm. a salaried man running yeah. money and, and running your own money? What's the biggest difference? Um, there, are, there are a huge number of differences. The one thing I would say is I now have more time to run money because when you, certainly when you run a big invest pool of investment funds, you are pulled in every direction mm. in a big organization. Uh, you've got marketing to do, sales. There's lots of regulation which constrain you mm. from doing a really good job for your clients, in my opinion. And now I'm a sovereign individual yeah. and I can do what the hell I like. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.